would carry on a conversation between friends, and so I appreciate that. Also, very much again, want to thank the congregation for allowing Karen and I to be back amongst you. We have looked forward to this for a long time. As I said in the Bible class this morning, um, the whole purpose of this particular gospel meeting is to share some encouragement, to remind us of some things, because I know that this congregation, the individuals in this congregation, as well as the congregation as a whole, has been struggling with health and other issues. And I just wanted to remind us, with this gospel meeting, of the innumerable blessings of our God and all of the great things that we have. Of course, it would take me a lot longer than just one gospel meeting to remind us of all the great things that we have in God, it would take all of eternity, but we are truly blessed to be amongst you again. We thank you for that opportunity. The question I have as we begin our worship service this morning, I just want you for you to ponder. Why do we, as individuals in our own hearts, why do we come here each Sunday? Really? Why do we do that? Why do we dress up and travel in each time the doors are open? Why do we live our lives in such a way that those in the world who don't know the Lord sometimes see us as just really a bunch of freaks who don't know how to have any fun? I mean, that's how some people see us. Why do we do that? Why do we fight sometimes with our friends and family and defend the truth of the gospel to them? despite some pretty difficult consequences at times, as maybe in accordance with Jesus' promise, even those in our own families will reject us. Why do we do that? Why do we do these things? I'm going to discuss the answers to those questions this morning in the sermon with a sermon that was inspired by the insights from a book I read several years ago. That book was entitled, Stronger Than Ever. And it was a book by Jason Jackson. And I promise you that if you really invest yourself in the lesson this morning, it can change your life. It really can. I'm going to ask that you begin this morning by opening in your Bibles to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Church of Christ in Ephesus. Ephesus chapter 3. I want you to understand that... My prayer for you this morning is the same as Paul's prayer was for that congregation. And this is what he said his prayer was for that congregation. He said in Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Paul said, I am praying that, you, that God will strengthen you and that you will understand that Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled 
with all the fullness of God. Paul said, I am praying for you. This was to our brethren in that church. Paul said to these brethren, those who were already in Christ, those who had already become children of the living God through their repentance and obedience to the gospel, he said, I'm praying that you will somehow be able to get your mind around the infinite love that God has for you. I want you, he said, to know the unknowable, to perceive that which is beyond comprehension, the height and the width and the depth, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the goodness of God. And I want for you, when you walk away from this gospel meeting, to have done that same exact thing. So I'm going to ask you to immerse, to immerse yourself totally in the sermon this morning because what you get out of it will far exceed anything you put into it. That book that I was talking about earlier, Stronger Than Ever, I want to read to you a little bit from pages 55 and 56. This is what Brother Jason Jackson wrote thereon. He said, under the heading, The Love of Christ, he said, The road ascends from the brook, bearing to the right, while another cuts to the left. A direct route to the summit of one of the world's most famous mountains. But all of its grandeur does not come from elevation. At this fork in the road, behind the enclosure, is the traditional site of Gethsemane. After visiting that very spot, J.W. McGarvey said this, he said, There is, of course, no certainty that this garden occupies the identical spot of the real Gethsemane, but it cannot be very far from the real spot. And its venerable olives, the like of which are not elsewhere seen in the vicinity of Jerusalem, render it more suggestive of the ancient associations than any other adjacent spot. Today, I want you in your mind, as we begin to think about that road, that garden that is the traditional site, somewhere on that mountain where our Lord knelt to pray the night before He was crucified for yours and my sins, I want you to try to envision that place. Brother Jackson goes on and says, We may never know the exact location where Jesus knelt in prayer. What is certain, however, is that we must go there to the events for which Gethsemane is known. Amid the shades, ponder the familiar scene, word by word. Christ's love, His benevolent goodwill, will bring us to our knees if, deep in thought, we go to Gethsemane. As we appreciate the depth of Christ's suffering, we learn about His divine love. Love means salvation, but salvation meant suffering. Thus, His suffering will teach us significantly about His love. If you go ahead and open in your Bibles with me to Mark 14, I'm going to mention several of the Gospel accounts in several different versions. You can just kind of read through it in yours. Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. In the American Standard Version, it says, And they come unto a place which was called Gethsemane, and he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. They come unto a place. They come is in what is called the historical present tense in the Greek language. 
The reason we use the historical present is to portray an event vividly. For example, if I were to say, tell you a story that happened months ago, but I use the present historical tense, it would be something like this, because I'm trying to portray it in such a way it's more vivid to you. Let's say that we got a phone call, and I'm telling you about this phone call that we got, and it was several months ago, and Karen got this phone call, and if I wanted to put you there more vividly, I would say, I rush into the room, and she says to me, see, that's present tense, I rush into the room, and she says to me, but it happened months ago. But I use the present tense to kind of draw you in. And in the original, it's my understanding, as the ASV puts it, that this is the historical presence, and they come unto a place. God wants you drawn in to Gethsemane. According to Mark 14 and verse 33, in the New American Standard Version, listen to this, it says that Jesus began to be very or deeply distressed and troubled. We don't often think about the Lord being very distressed. I want for us to understand, yes, Jesus was God in the flesh, yes. But Jesus was also human. If he pounded his thumb with a hammer doing carpenter work, it was going to hurt. It wasn't like, well, I'm God, that didn't hurt. He was human. And so, it says here that he was very distressed and troubled. The New King James reverses those two terms, but it's the same two terms. I want to look at this word for word here. He began to be very distressed. Gethsemane means olive press. That's what the term means, olive press. They used to take the olives and they'd have this big press and they'd press the juice out of them. And don't miss the imagery. Jesus began to be compressed with sorrow, squeezed as it were, felt the, the stress and the tension. He began to be compressed. The Bible says he was very distressed. That's an interesting term. In the Greek, what this term means is to throw into terror. We say, well, how Jesus wasn't terrorized. Well, let's listen to the rest of the lesson first. The term means to be thrown into terror it means to be thrown into amazement, to be thoroughly alarmed, to be terrified, to be astounded, to be struck with terror. That's what this term in the Greek means where it says Jesus was deeply distressed. As if that were not enough, he was also troubled. Or as the ASV says, sore troubled, and that means he was in great distress and anguish. Jesus was in amazed anguish. The scripture is showing us in Mark 14, it'd probably be good if I turned over there as well rather than just took it off my notes. The Bible says to us in Mark 14 and verse 33 or indicates to us that Jesus was beginning to be compressed. He was beginning to be in great anguish and distress. He said, he said so himself in the very next verse. Look at the next verse, Mark 14 and verse 34. Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He told us himself. He doesn't say, 
I'm dreading the thorns going, the thorns being pounded into my head. I'm, I'm thinking about the nails. He said, my soul inside is deeply distressed, even to the point of death. means an overwhelming sorrow. It suggests a sorrow that is so deep it almost kills you. This is what the Lord said Himself He was going through. And so Jesus at this point goes a stone's throw beyond them according to Luke 22 and verse 41. And He falls on the ground as it says in Mark 14 and verse 35. Probably beneath the weight of what was about to occur. And Jesus at that point pours himself out in prayer to God. Matthew's Gospel tells us three times he prayed to God. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Is there some other way we can do this? Yet not my will, but thine be done. We know the story from Matthew's Gospel. He goes back, he finds the disciples asleep, and he goes and he prays the same thing a second time, and he, and he begs and he pleads with God, and he says, is there some other way we can do this? Jesus is terrified. And he's struggling. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And he goes and he does it a third time. Luke records another aspect of this that the other three writers do not. Turn with me to Luke 22. Luke's going to throw in another detail that the other three writers didn't. Luke chapter 22 Verse 41, and I'm taking all these pictures of the puzzle here from the four Gospels and the different versions, and I want to paint for you a picture of what we commemorate when we gather around this table. In Luke 22 and verse 41, it says this, He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Luke records this. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Now, I don't know what the angel said. I don't know what the angel did. All I know is what's printed in the text. Your opinion of whatever the angel did or did not do or did, or did not say is just as valid as mine is because the Bible doesn't tell us. But whatever that angel said or didn't say or did or didn't do, that angel was a reminder to Jesus of what was waiting once he got through the cross. Once he got through those three days, this was a reminder of what was there. But then this is interesting. It's after that occurrence. And in some reason early on in my Christianity, I always thought it, it was before. I always thought, well, like he sweat great drops of blood, but then the angel, like great drops of blood, but then the angel showed up, strengthened him, and he was fine. That's not what the text says. The angel showed up to strengthen him, and even then, after that, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Even after that reminder of what was waiting for him, even after that angel showed up to give him strength, even then in his strengthened condition, he's so intense that this overwhelming thing that is facing him, even then, with that strengthening of the angel having happened, he's so intense he sweats like great drops of blood. Think about that. James Edwards wrote, Nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. 
neither the laments of the Psalms nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom, absolutely nothing compares to Jesus' agony there in Gethsemane. Nothing. No loss. As we look at the agony of Christ this morning, I want to present four different truths to you. I want to present the presence of Satan, who played a big part, the propitiation for our sins, the purpose of God, and finally, Jesus, our high priest, or the priesthood of Christ. Number one, I want us to consider in Gethsemane the presence of Satan. Satan was in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, we know that. It was in Genesis 3.15, actually it was there from chapter 3 and verse 1, but it was in chapter 3 and verse 15 that God gives the first prophecy concerning the promise of the Messiah coming. And we see in the garden God the Creator, man the creature, Satan the tempter, and Christ the Savior. They're all there in Genesis 3 in that arena of conflict. Jesus knew, speaking of the presence of Satan, Jesus knew... The devil's role in the fall of man. He knew he was a liar and a deceiver. John 8 and verse 44. How many of you have seen the movie The Passion? Remember that night in Gethsemane that is, is the one portraying Satan was kind of skulking around in the shadows there? Remember that? Now, I realize that that movie had a few things in it that weren't 100% biblical, but we have to believe that certainly Satan's evil presence had to have been felt that night. I mean, Jesus was tempted not to go through. Father, if there's any other way. I mean, he didn't fall for temptation. Jesus never, never sinned. He never fell for temptation. But he was tempted in all things as we are, Hebrews tells us. Christ said the hour would result in the prince of the world being cast out, John 12 and verse 31. These are all instances of the presence of Satan that night. Jesus knew that Judas, by yielding to temptation, had let Satan into his heart, John 13 and verse 26. Jesus had told his disciples earlier that night, he said, the ruler of this world is coming, he has no power over me. Jesus said on his way to Gethsemane, the ruler of this world is judged, John 16 and verse 11. Jesus characterized his arrest as being delivered into the hands of sinners, Mark 14 and verse 41. They didn't take his life. He surrendered it. He told us that in John 10 and verse 17. And then he described it as their hour and the power of darkness in Luke 22 and verse 53. And so the question is, why would Jesus allow such a thing? Why would God allow such a thing to happen? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, since then the children's children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself in like manner partook of the same. That through death might be brought to naught that that had the power of death, that is the devil. The reason God allowed all that, and not only allowed it, but planned for it to happen. One reason. It's the reason you see in the mirror every morning. That's why. That's why I guess how many. Don't think about the rest of the church this morning. Think about you. 
make this personal. You know, it's easy to talk about somebody. We don't seem to have so much a problem talking about somebody else's sins. Sometimes we do our own, right? Sad, but true. Well, you know, the whole world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that's true. I'm not being irreverent here. But we find it a little easier to say that than we do my sin. My sin put him there. I know what I am. I know what I did. And those spikes that went through his wrist are because of my sin. That's getting personal. You know, we've let some of our denominational friends steal that phrase, personal Savior. If Jesus isn't your personal Savior, He's not your Savior. You need to make it personal. And Gethsemane was personal. It was for you and me. I want you to think about absolute perfection, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, allowing Himself to put, be put under the power willfully yielding but allowing himself to be put under the power of the prince of darkness evil incarnate even for a moment what a what a shock what a what a terrifying thought that must have been the unimaginable agony at the mere thought of deity being in sinners hands under the sway of satan for even an instant brings us to our second element jesus the propitiation for our sins we're all familiar with Romans 3 and verse 23. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. That's a big word. But I want to try to put across this morning what it means. And this is kind of the meat of the entire lesson this morning. Why don't you think about this? As our sin bearer, Jesus Christ would be forced to suffer the full penalty for each and every one of our sins. He would suffer the equivalent of eternity in hell for each individual sin ever committed all at once. Think, think about that. How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to get tossed out of the garden? How many sins did it take for Moses not to enter the promised land? How many sins would it take for you and I not to be able to make it into heaven? You with me? One sin in the face of a holy and righteous God who cannot stand sin, who has never sinned, sin is so repugnant and abhorrent to him, one sin in the face of this holy and righteous God deserves eternity in hell. One sin. Now, knowing that one sin deserves eternity in hell, eternity, forever. How would you like to have to pay the price for every sin you've ever... How would you like... Let's say that you've committed in the course of your life... Oh, we'll go light on you. We'll say you've committed only a couple of hundred thousand sins in the course of your life, okay? Can you imagine facing the full-blown wrath of God? If one sin equals eternity in hell, can you imagine facing that 200,000 times over? No. Now, here's the thing. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, paid the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin that has ever been committed since the Garden of Eden. Get your head around that. You can't. He paid the equivalent of eternity in hell for each and every single sin that has ever been committed. We can't even pay for our own. We couldn't pay for one of our own. And he faced the full-blown, all-out, all-encompassing wrath of Almighty God poured out on him, poured out for the sins, the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sin that's ever been committed, individually, all at once, all together. Do you begin to understand why the Scripture shows he was terrified? Do you begin to see the overwhelming incredible, mind-blowing, can't-get-our-thoughts-around-it process that Jesus was facing. That is the meat, that's what it means to be the propitiation for our sins. The thought of hell overwhelms us for just one of our own sins. The thought of hell for eternity overwhelms us for just ten of our own sins. Yet for every bad thing that's ever happened in every human being who's ever sinned against another, Jesus took it all in one all-out assault. That's terrifying, even to God. And that's what Jesus did for you. Turn to me in your Bibles to Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. This is grace, people. But we see Jesus. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He paid for everybody's sins, but the equivalent of eternity in hell for each one of them, and all of them together, from this person and this person and this person, all the way back through all the people that have ever lived, all in one colossal blow. The Bible, in fact, says in 2 Corinthians, turn there. Look in chapter 5 and verse 21. This is interesting. Sometimes we often say that Jesus took our sins upon him. That's not quite the way the Bible says it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Look what it says. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That doesn't say he carried it on his back. That's not what it says. It says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's more... Carrying something on your back is different than you becoming it. Totally different. So overwhelming was all of that sin that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But, but here's the question. Okay, alright. But how can a temporary, even part of three days, suffering in Hades be the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sin? How does that work? Well, Jack Cottrell put it this way. If Christ actually took our place in bearing the wrath of God, and He did, this means He bore the full force of God's wrath. 
He, he suffered the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sinner. We must keep in mind that both the physical and the spiritual suffering of Christ was experienced by one who was by nature divine and thus infinite in his being. Thus, even though he suffered only a finite period of time, the suffering itself was infinite. It cannot be quantified. How can the suffering Christ, which lasted only a few hours, be the equivalent of eternity in hell for the whole human race? Here's how. Because he was God. The finite suffering of an infinite being would seem to be the equivalent to the infinite suffering of finite beings. This is one of the main reasons why atonement could only be accomplished by God and not by anybody else. Think about that. We as finite or limited beings, having to suffer an infinite amount of time in hell, what would be the equal to that? The equal to that would be an infinite being of holiness and righteousness having to suffer it all for sin. You see, see what the point that he's making? We think in terms of time way too much. We're going to talk more about that Wednesday night. Don't think, well, you know, he's only in there part of three days. Yes, but for an infinite God... To be in that condition for even a moment is a whole different ball game. As the Lord Jesus Christ saw the absolute wrath of God about to be unleashed on him full force for every sin ever committed since the beginning of time, is it any wonder he said, Father, if there's any other way, shouldn't surprise us at all. I want you to consider with me third the purpose of God. You know, Jesus so loved the Father that he yielded to the Father's will. He yielded to the Father's will, although this redemptive work required the unspeakable, it required the unthinkable, it required the unimaginable. But God so loved you. Yes, my mama taught me not to point, I think. It was a long time ago. But we got to get this. Yes, God loved the world, but God loved you and me so much that he had a plan in place. God knew before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. God knew before the foundation of the world, before he ever started this whole thing in creation, God knew he was going to mess up. And so he had this plan in place since before the foundation of the world to rescue us once we'd messed up before he ever created us. And that was to send his son. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. What's Peter's message? It's all part of the plan. God loves you that much. God gave His Son, John 3.16. God sent His Son, John 6.38. God delivered His Son up, Acts 2.23. God smote His own Son, Mark 14 and verse 27. And He laid on Him all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, and made Him an offering for sin for all time, Isaiah 53. He perfected him through suffering, Hebrews 2.10, and he made him our sin offering, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is the purpose of God. Turn to me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. 
God's purpose. God loves you that much. I didn't grow up in the church. Wish I had, but I didn't. And I don't know. Maybe it's different if you do. But when you come face to face with who and what you are, and you look at what God was still willing to do for you, knowing all along what you would be, that still blows my mind. It's a reason I'm still a Christian. Paul never got over grace, and I hope I never do either. But 700 years before Jesus came, look what he said, Isaiah 53. Verse 1, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Listen to what Jesus did. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. I've got the word our highlighted throughout here in my Bible. And he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. There's God's purpose. You're it. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sounds like a southern term, doesn't it? I had to learn to say y'all when I came down here. But this us all? <laughs> yeah. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He is stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he'd done no violence, was there any, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's the physical suffering. Now let's look at his soul. Remember he said, my soul is troubled? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. God was happy to do that. God, it pleased God to bruise Jesus. It pleased God because I and you are that important. It pleased, it made God happy to be willing to do that to his sinless son because of you and me. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He'll prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul. Jesus didn't just suffer physical, physically, physical death in that way. This is something else we got to understand. Jesus suffered in his soul. Jesus suffered inside. And this is all about his soul here. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He'll divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. My name is there. 
where it says transgressors, that was me, I sinned. Lastly, the priesthood of Christ. Jesus became a perfect high priest because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Becoming our high priest did not entail just leaving behind all of the glories of heaven, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. But it involved coming down here and being put within reach of the devil to tempt. Jesus was tempted as we are. And then beyond that, beyond leaving the glories of heaven behind and, and coming down here and being tempted, beyond that, there was the physical suffering as the spikes were driven in, but beyond even that, his soul and facing the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin ever committed all at once. That's what it took to become our high priest. Look with me in Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, beginning at verse 5. You want to see a picture of divine love? You know, sometimes it used to be grandparents, you know, they'd take out their wallet and they'd have this long, some of you that are younger probably don't remember these, these long plastic things. These are my grandkids. You know, today they pull out something electronic and say, see, look, they're all right here, right? I want you to get a portrait. I want you to get a picture of God's love this morning as we talk about the priesthood of Christ. A picture of His divine love as you consider what was going on in Gethsemane that night. Hebrews 5, 5-9, through 9, it says, So also Christ did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but it was Him who said to Him, You're my Son. Today I have begotten you. As He also says in another place, You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But then watch this. Jesus is talking about who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Listen, just because God doesn't say yes to your prayers doesn't mean he didn't answer them or didn't hear them. Jesus cried out in prayer that night in the garden, Father, if there's some other way, this terrible thing is in front of me, and God, if there's some other way. Does the Bible say in Hebrews 5 that God heard him? Yes, he was heard because of his reverent submission. But did he still have to go through the cross? Yes. God heard him. But God loves you so much that God had to answer Jesus' prayer. There's no other way. This is the way it's got to be. That's how much you're loved. And that still blows my mind. For me. It continues, Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears because he was terrified at what we've described awaited him. J.J. continues, he says, Death was not merely the ceasing of biological life to Jesus. He perceived its spiritual significance in all of its divine repulsiveness. The death and separation experience as a sin burden was torturous. But it was not the fear of death to which mankind had been in bondage that the Lord dreaded. In spite of the anguish, He chose to suffer for us because of His love for our souls. He entered the crucible of suffering as only a divine person in the flesh could. In spite of the sorrowful alienation from the Father, He willingly submitted 
to suffer inconceivable agony on the basis of His compassion for our lost condition. Listen, we often talk about the cross and the scourging. They took those thorns and that crown of thorns and if you read some commentators they'll tell you those thorns were probably around two inches long. They took those thorns and they put them in that crown and they put them on his head and then they took clubs. I know sometimes when we think of a reed, we think of a reed by a riverbank. But when the Bible talks about them taking a reed, hitting him on the head, that's not what you're talking about. It's a blade of grass. You're talking about a club. And they drove that into his head. And they scourged him and they opened his back up. And they made him drag his cross until he just couldn't carry it any further. Then they got him out there and they spiked him to it. But I must tell you that I don't believe that the physical suffering is even the beginning of Jesus' suffering. Listen, some of the early saints were put to death. They were lit in fire on Nero's garden. They were given to wild animals. They were, they were tied and wrapped in skins and thrown into the arena and the lions would rip them apart. And some of our, how many of you read Fox's Book of Martyrs? incredible book about the suffering of, of some of those first and second century saints. And some of them faced that without any kind of trepidation according to the reports. I mean, they were glad to die for the Lord. If humans could face that kind of torture and death and face it without, you know, the fear that some of us would think, Jesus certainly could do that. But what I want you to understand as we get ready to close here is this. Yes, the physical was awful, but too often we concentrate just on the physical. It wasn't just physical suffering on the cross. It was separation from God the Father for the only time in all eternity because of his sins. His Father couldn't look at him, yes. But he took every sin and paid the equivalent of eternity in hell for it. All at once. That's why Jesus, his soul was distressed and he was sore troubled. We strain to understand that. We, we strain to get our minds around it. But I'll tell you something to me that, that just is overwhelming as well. When I think he did it for me. He went through all of that because he loves me that much, because he wants to be my high priest, because he wants to comfort me in all my affliction. You know, I said the congregation here has been through some things. People go through things. We go through those valleys. But Jesus did all of that because he wants to be my comfort source. Jesus went through all of that because he wants to be there for me. He wants to calm my doubts and my fears and he wants to give me grace and mercy to help in my... Do you need grace and mercy to help in your time of need? Yes. That's what he went through, everything we've talked about for, so that he would be a great and faithful high priest who has been tempted in all things we are, so that we can go to his throne of grace and mercy and find help in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. There's no other reason Jesus went through that. Understand that. Jesus went through that for that reason. For that person you see in the mirror every morning. I want you to understand God's love this morning for you.
want you to understand that Jesus didn't just come for everybody else in the world. He didn't just come because God thought, oh, that'd be a cool thing to do. I'll send my son to die. He came, and he did what he did, and he went through what he went through. Because he loves you that much. And here's the thing, Romans 8. He loves you that much, and he went through that much for you. He's not giving up now on walking through the fire with you. If God delivered up his son for us, how will he not now with us freely give all things? God didn't invest himself to that degree just so he could leave you out there in the struggles you face every day all by yourself. That's not the way it works. As we close this morning, I have one final passage. I want you to look up with me, please. And then we will close. It is Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And it says this. Revelation chapter 5, 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was ten thousands, time ten thousands, and thousands of thousands. And this is what they were saying. This is what they were celebrating. This is how they were worshiping. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! Twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They understood what Jesus had done. And the only response if we truly understand what Jesus did for us, for me, is to join them in hushed worship of the Lamb who is worthy. I'm going to ask you to take about 20 seconds of silent prayer and reflect on this lesson after which we will be led in our song and gather about the table. Thank <laughs> you.